Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. Apologies for the slight delay in this episode. Work and life events continue to get in the way of my passion for producing these conversations. And so now it's time for another outsider episode where I talk with individuals that feel divorced from their profession and don't identify with their professional label and the professionally assumed meaning of that label. And so on this episode, I'm speaking with Elliot Sierra. Elliot is an evidence based chiropractor who specialises in physical rehabilitation and chronic pain management through strength and conditioning focused treatments. Many of you may be familiar with Elliot via Instagram with his handle, The Rehab Cairo, which, amongst sharing evidence before messaging, also provides its critical and often humorous commentary on chiropractic. Elliot works in the US within a private clinic located in Chicago, and as an undergraduate student, Elliot attended the University of Iowa, where he worked in the physical therapy department at the medical college, aiding in research regarding spinal cord injury patients. Elliot went on to attend the Palmer College of Chiropractic, where he got his Doctor of Chiropractic degree and founded the school's first evidence-based chiropractic club. In his professional career, Elliot has worked with a wide array of individuals, ranging from elite athletes to post-surgical patients. And so it was great to speak with Elliot. As you'll hear, we share a common experience of leaving via choice or through force a Facebook group of our respective professions. And it was fun to exchange the reasons and context around that. So I bring you Elliot Sierra. Elliot, welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. So you're reigniting the Outsider series of podcast episodes. There's been a bit of a hiatus. I've had this long quest to finish the clinical reasoning series, which has taken me about 24 years. But recently I came to know you, or actually I come to know you from Instagram and you're pretty prolific on the social media platforms, but we share something in common. Uh, you and I have both been kicked out of <laughs> Facebook groups of our respective mm-hmm. professions for kind of not so quiet dissent. So I definitely want to talk about that and how it felt for you to be booted out. Uh, and also we can reflect on my own kind of pericardium gate and being booted out of one of the many osteopathic forums. But before we get into all of that and your positioning as an outsider, do you want to introduce yourself, your academic clinical background and what you're currently doing? Sure. Yeah, I guess my clinical journey started, or my academic journey rather, started sort of at the same time. I went to the University of Iowa for my undergraduate degree, went there on an academic scholarship, had never visited the University of Iowa and just accepted their offer straight out of the bat because of the offer that I got. So they sort of enticed me to come into the university based off of what was called a undergraduate research program. So they allowed me to match up with a mentor 
And then the mentor that I had basically allowed me to work in the laboratory, work on some of the research that was already going on. And it just so happened that my mentor was the head of the physical therapy department. So right off the bat, what ended up happening was I gave the program my preferences, what I thought I would like to do in the future. And they sort of just matched me up with the perfect person. My mentor was fantastic. His name was Dr. Richard Shields. He's brilliant, brilliant guy, the smartest person I've ever met in my life. Um, and it wasn't, I had one of those moments and one of those epiphanies where you meet someone so smart, you're like, okay, this is a new league. I have to be on this level. Uh, someone who really propels you forward and makes you want to be better. So had a fantastic experience doing undergraduate research and my direct mentor in the lab. So while Dr. Shields was sort of the head of the department, my direct mentor and the person that I worked with most intimately was Dr. Michael Petrie, who was a chiropractor, funnily enough. And, uh, Michael had graduated from Palmer College of Chiropractic, which is also located in Iowa. And he was doing his PhD in rehabilitative services. So he was doing a, uh, a great project on spinal cord injury patients, which was the project that I was working on with him. And um, he sort of pushed me to go to chiropractic school. And at the time I was debating whether to go to PT school or chiropractic school, he got in my ear really sort of uh, pushed me to go in that direction because he saw how I was interacting with patients clinically, thought that I would be a good fit. And that's sort of what propelled me to actually go to Palmer College of Chiropractic. So after that, set up a tour, enrolled in Palmer College. It was great. You know, some of the courses, I had some back and forth with some of the professors, some of the students, we had some back and forth naturally as we spoke about um, the differences between the evidence and the philosophy where some things were being maybe conflated or misunderstood, but it was fine. You know, the, the program was great. Um, I started the school's first evidence-based club. So that was awesome. Um, got a lot of, uh, you know, journal club type things going on, tried to explain some of the literature, tried to see how that was applicable and how we could integrate that into the curriculum. Cause we only had, I think about one evidence-based, you know, literature class where we learned about how to basically scour the online databases and, and, and read things. Um, so I try to push that a bit more. So what was it that Michael saw in you? Sounds like he's Yoda, right? And you're Luke, but what was it he saw about your interaction with patients that he thought mm -hmm. that you'd be a good fit for chiropractic? Do you know, do you get a sense of what, how he felt that the profession would match your talents or expertise at the time? Yeah, I think Michael saw something in me that was similar to what he had in himself, where Michael was very, very evidence-based. He was very you know, methodical with his care, highly intellectual. And I think that he saw that in me as well. But I also had a side of me that is, you know, I try to bring sort of a lighthearted, almost airiness to the clinical process. Because I think patients are maybe have a little bit of apprehensions. It's a little bit intimidating going into a very, you know, sterile field, basically, especially in a, a medical college where, um, you know, we're taking biopsies of the patient's vastus lateralis. That can be intimidating. We have to, you know, minor surgery. We're hooking them up to these large apparatuses to measure, you know, force uh, production and, and whatnot. So I think the interactions that I had with patients and, you know, being able to calm them down and being able to reassure them and being able to talk them through the process and make them not scared of what we were going to you know, basically put them through allowed Michael to say, Hey, you're good at this clinical side. And I think, you know, at one point in time, he actually said to me, I think it would be almost a waste 
if you want to go get your PhD without exploring uh, the clinical side first. If you want to come back and do basically what I did, that's great. But I think you should also get this clinical side and then decide from that point in time what you want to do from there. So, so your positioning at the time was this a or your the kind of career curve was potentially academia research, but instead you sidestepped into chiropractic. So it wasn't the toss up between physical therapy, medicine, chiropractic. It was, did you consider those other options before you were pushed by Michael? Yeah, it was, I'd say it was physical therapy, chiropractic, and then, you know, academia because the program that I was in was really designed to breed uh, PhD students. And so they tried to match you with your area of interest and then they tried to keep you on and then eventually have you become a PhD for the school. But because I was in the physical therapy department, because the head of the department um, was a mentor of mine, I got to experience, you know, basically interacting with physical yeah. therapy students. Um, I got to experience talking to my mentor all the time and he was uh, integral part of the physical therapy curriculum. And he was also trying to get me to do physical therapy. So on one end, I had Michael trying to get me into chiropractic. And on the other end, I had Dr. Shields trying to get me into physical therapy. Um, but because I interacted closely with Michael, he was a person who I spoke to day to day. Um, I really trusted his insight because he saw me the most and I thought he was brilliant as well. So uh, I knew that he was going to steer me in the correct direction. And what were your perceptions of chiropractic before you enrolled on the program? What were your kind of a priori beliefs about the profession? Had you had much engagement as a patient or any friends and family been to see a chiro? Yeah. So the only person in my family who went to see a chiropractor was my father, who had the typical chiropractic experience, you know, at least in the US, I think. Um, you know, the chiropractor was subluxation based. Um, you know, only spinal manipulation, um, you know, talked about the visceral influence of spinal misalignments you know, the whole nine. And that was my father's experience. He would go to see him once a month, see him for about two minutes at a time, get his back cracked and then be sent on his way out the door. So that was the only experience that, um, you know, my family had. And at the time, I mean, to bet you might be in the child at the time, so you may have had no thoughts about any of the stuff that the chiropractors did to your father, but do you remember at the time what you thought about it? Did it seem like a sensible way for your dad to, to kind of live a healthy life? Or were you thinking, it's all a bit weird, dad? What are you, what are you doing? Yeah. Oh, I've always thought it was a bit weird, not only because of the, it's funny, the chiropractor worked out of his house and outside of his house, he had these Roman sort of Greek statues that were outside of his house that uh, lined his driveway up to his house. Very eclectic character. So right off of the bat, I said, I'm just, just to, just to create a sense of ease for patients. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a bit, a bit odd to begin with right out of the shoots, but that's fine. Everyone has their, uh, quirks and, and, uh, personality about them. So, uh, other than that, you know, I thought that my father, because at the time he wasn't exercising as much as he probably could have been, he was under a tremendous amount of stress from his job. I thought to myself at the time, because I was a, a personal trainer as well, that there were things that he probably could have been doing that would ease his pain that he wasn't taking care of. And so he would go to this chiropractor and see him once a month and probably feel better for about you know, two hours after the appointment, maybe a day after the appointment. And then everything would just sort of shift back to the normal or his version of normal, where he was in this low sort of quality pain state for, you know, perpetually. So to continue where you left off in terms of your entrance into chiropractic, what was 
what was it like being a chiropractic student at, is it Palmer College you went to, mm-hmm. which to me would suggest that the kind of the lecture theatre seats are just drenched in the tears of Dee Palmer. And it's, it, maybe that's not fair. Um, we've got kind of 80 still university colleges and that kind of stuff where these, these institutions set up by the founder, or at least named after the founder, it to me would suggest a, a kind of purist curriculum or an ideology. Was that the case? How did you interact with that? Yeah, there is definitely a, a reverence for you know, the founders of chiropractic from the, it's funny outside during the main, inside of the main courtyard, there's these giant, huge uh, busts of D.D. Palmer and, and, and B.J. Palmer, these huge floating heads were. Which you had to touch on the forehead before entering the building. Yeah, that, you know, it was almost <laughs> a sign of good luck to touch them before an examination or students would go up and take pictures of them. And there's, in a, in a smaller courtyard, there's a, a statue of D.D. Uh, Palmer giving the first adjustment to Harvey Lillard. So there's a bunch of memorabilia sort of tying the foundations or origins of chiropractic to, you know, the modern day experience of chiropractors uh, as the students, you know, walked around and interacted with those things. It was sort of engraved into, you know, the very walls of of Palmer College with quotes from D.D. Palmer and B.J. Palmer literally on the walls on your way to the library, literally on the walls on your way to the gym. So you definitely felt that mm. they wanted to retain that, you know, the, the, the sense of, of tradition at Palmer. And because Palmer is, you know, quote unquote, the fountainhead of where chiropractic started, that's sort of what they were known for as well. So it had that additional allure to a lot of students. And how did you find that? I mean, the, you know, to me, it, there's a sense of kind of religiosity about the whole thing where there's a preserving of traditional actions, but thoughts too, that I'd imagine just you just, just like me, there's an encouragement from your educators to think to some extent in a way which is congruent with some of the traditional tenets and ideologies from you know, 120 years ago in Missouri. Yeah, I thought that it was a bit odd, but I didn't have necessarily an issue with it until those ideas and philosophies started to bleed into the curriculum itself. And that led to academic discussions where I felt that the either the professors or potentially the students approached it in a way that was basically untenable. Like there was no way that we were going to be able to reach mutual ground because they had this philosophical, almost religious-like underpinning that was basically preventing them from, in good faith, interacting with the data. And so I felt that there was almost a blockade put in between them and I which automatically made me an outsider because of how they thought originally. Mm. So there and was you almost, came from a research background, essentially, or a, a clinical science background. Yeah, yeah. So I came from that background. And so I got along well with, you know, the professors who also did academic research. And I got along well with the students who also did academic research. And I was able to find a group of students who were like-minded in that way. It was almost as, as if, if they had experience with academia, we were going to get along. And if they didn't, then the hurdle was going to be a little bit harder for me to have to jump over to bring them to my side of the argument. And, you know, I had some luck with students and then I had bad luck with others. Um, sort of garnered a, a name for myself that I was uh, somewhat unapproachable 
on certain topics <laughs> because I was unwavering. Um, but I still went to different clubs. I still got the full chiropractic experience. I tried to glean what I could out of different, you know, techniques, methodologies, philosophies, but I never felt that I could plunge myself a hundred percent, uh, into these ideas because I knew sort of what their underpinnings actually were. And is it the case that you, that many of your colleagues or a significant proportion did kind of embody that philosophy? I mean, they were just, they bought into it. Were you the kind of outlier in terms of being skeptical and critical, or you had some kind of colleagues too that shared the same view? What was the kind of the mixture of of kind of weddedness to the ideas? I'd say by far I was the most outspoken person, at least when it came to how the philosophies and ideologies of the past clashed with our current idea of the evidence. Um, to the point where you know, I had some rather heated discussions and debates with uh, different chiropractors, uh, uh, different professors and students. I remember one instance in particular, I had an argument with a professor who said that the MRI results pretty much matched up one-to-one every single time with the physical symptoms of the patient and how he basically referred every patient that he had for an MRI. And we had a heated debate in the middle of class. And then after class, you know, he pulled me aside and said, you know, we need more people like you. You're very skeptical. I appreciated your inquiry, but then didn't change anything about his teachings. So it was as if he realized that, hey, you're the type of person who makes advancements in the profession, but also I'm going to proceed teaching how I'm going to teach, which is a motif that I saw time and again, specifically in academia and a couple times just in casual conversations with friends who it felt like they completely understand, stood my point. Um, they completely understood the premises that I was making and they believed them to be true, but because it, inter, you know, it basically interfered with their you know, inner workings or their philosophy or what they thought to be true. Um, again, it was like almost a religious aspect that would completely, you know, disallow them to, to take up what I was saying. And so, I mean, did you have any thoughts about why that was? I mean, it's clearly more challenging, cognitively burdensome to think against the kind of status, the status quo, so to speak. So it's much easier just to go along with what's being taught and not to critically reflect on that knowledge. But for you, it seems that you had lots of energy to burn in that department. And so colleagues seem like they, accepted your points but just it's just life is easier particularly if you're imagining just graduating getting into clinical practice making some money i mean just just continuing life it's much easier to to continue on that devoted journey yeah i think the probably the most illustrative instance of that was i had a friend who was big into you know, gonstead style chiropractic and probably within the first year of my curriculum, I tried to retain sort of the manual therapy components of Gonstead without taking the philosophical components. I tried to basically peel those two things apart because I liked the way that Gonstead practitioners practice sort of a, a gentle, you know, quote unquote, specific style before I started reading into the literature about, you know, specifics about spinal manipulation, but I enjoyed. And I think just to pause for, for non-Gonstead yeah. listeners, I mean, Gonstead is, as you said, a very specific, I mean, 
uber-specific type of adjustment. Mm-hmm. All spinal restriction therapy often claims or traditionally claim to be specific in terms of location, in terms of direction, all that kind of stuff, but considers just 10 out of 10 on all those criteria. Yeah, I enjoyed sort of the stepwise methodical process that constant practitioners went through to actually try and decipher where to manipulate or or you know how the patient was actually going to receive treatment. I liked the system that they used about other things I felt didn't have that sort of stepwise progression or that clinical reasoning processes. And although, you know, now looking back, I can say that that clinical reasoning process, the majority of it is just completely unwarranted and unfounded. And a lot of it is baseless. Back then, the allure to systems like that were that people like me enjoy having this sort of stepwise progression. Clear framework. You can imagine how students, when when the evidence just says, well, it's all uncertain and there's no clear pillars, which are just unwobbly, immovable. I mean, everything is shakeable. It's, and some present you with a clinical framework, such as Gonstead or whatever the other frameworks might be. And you can follow that by rote. It's appealing and alluring to a student or a new graduate. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that being my first sort of technique or clinical methodology, right out of the gate, I knew that I did not want to retain a lot of the things that they were saying, but I really enjoyed the manual therapy component of what they were doing. And so I tried to, again, sort of peel those two things away from each other. And I went to seminars and I went to clubs and I spoke to students and time. And again, I was unable to change anyone's mind and I was unable to peel those things away from each other. And I remember I actually had a staff member at Palmer College give a speech about uh, surface EMG. And uh, this, there's this tool that I don't know if I want to name, but there's a surface EMG tool that Gonstead practitioners use to quote unquote scan the spine and determine where they should deliver a spinal manipulation. So one of the staff members and I were talking. He was one of the first guests that I brought on to talk to the students. And he gave a, a hour-long lecture about why that does not correlate to anything, basically. And after that lecture, some of the students inside of the lecture hall reached out to chiropractors that they knew. And, and I don't know actually how this happened, but basically the company itself reached out to me and the professor who gave the lecture saying, Hey, you know, we heard you were talking about our device. We heard you were talking about um, the application of our device. And we want to know if there's anything that we can clear up and we're willing to provide you literature. So him and I right away said, perfect, send the literature. We are more than willing to change our minds. If the literature is sufficient, of course, go ahead and send it over. And their quote unquote literature was essentially a brochure. It was just a pamphlet explaining how to use the device. So that, you know, that is an experience that I had with a company and students where, you know, again, that wall was there. There was no way that I was going to change those preconceptions. And then once I felt that there might be hope, the company wasn't able to provide me with anything. So I, you know, I reached those roadblocks time and again, and that's really what spurred me to, to making the evidence-based club on campus. So how, how did, um, I mean, how did you feel during this time? I mean, did you think about jumping ship, barking back into your research career or another clinical career? 
what was what were the sort of thoughts and feelings going through your your mind at this time? Yeah, I'd say there was about three, two or three points in chiropractic school where I thought about switching to physical therapy. And I actually spoke to physical therapy admissions for a couple of different colleges. And I thought, you know, could I feasibly achieve this? How long would this set me back? And will I be able to do the same things with a different license? And those, I think, two times that I actually seriously considered it were a year into the program and then actually two years into the program. So there's a couple of different spots where I, I considered it. And both of the times that I reached out to physical therapy programs, it was because I felt that I was too evidence-based and there was not going to be a place for me within the profession. Even though I had mentors who were practicing and were highly evidence-based and were essentially doing what I wanted to do, it still felt as a student like an impossibility that I was going to be able to go out to the world, build a clinic, build clientele and treat patients how I actually wanted to treat them. And so I thought to myself, I basically want to treat like a physical therapist, more or less, even though I do enjoy manual therapy. So why don't I go ahead and at least explore to see what it would be like if I made the switch? And the reason why I didn't is because it would effectively put me a year and a half behind where I was right now. And, you know, I reached back out to my mentors, reached back out to Michael, I'll reach back out to a couple different chiropractors who I had actually worked for as a rehab aide. And I asked them what they thought I could do or what they thought I should do. And they encouraged me to sort of stay the course, um, said that, you know, it's really not worth turning back at this point in time. Um, and if I wanted to get the degree at another point in time, after completing the chiropractic degree, I could always do that, you know, Greg Lehman-esque and just, you know, go for that. And presumably your, your, the kind of the way that you're practicing now looks like physical therapy. Whatever that looks like, but I'm I'm just you know my intuition here is that me watching you practice, you're not bringing out the activator and the spinal <laughs> EMG, or the even the what's the one looking at cutaneous blood flow or the heat up and down the spine and looking at hot spots and that's not your style of practice and that's not the style of all of chiropractic of course. But so is is the case you you found a point now where you can pretty much express your evidence-based values, your kind of, um, kind of passion for movement and rehab under the chiropractic professional label. Is there anything that you think the physical therapy label might have given you, which you don't have the physical therapy label, but also just the experience there's some clinical expertise, which you don't have that the physical therapy degree may have developed with you? Yeah. I think that the physical therapy title and curriculum lends itself to a little bit more experience clinically. You get a little bit more of a robust clinical experience in, a, in numerous different environments. And in chiropractic school, you don't get too much of that. There's an opportunity to go to the VA system, which is probably the best program that chiropractic schools have. What's the VA? The VA is the um, the veterans basically hospital where okay. you can go and work in a multidisciplinary setting. Um, with a chiropractor and you get to see a wide array of, of different people with a bunch of different conditions. And that's super useful for, for students in particular, because you're sort of thrown into the fire and you can see how chiropractors collaborate with other providers. So that's probably the best program that chiropractic schools offer right now. But then outside of that, you have a preceptorship, which is basically one trimester or one semester of working with a chiropractor actually out into the field in, in the private sector. And that's useful, but it is essentially the wild west 
And because chiropractic already lacks standardization and we don't get, you know, hospital rotations or anything like that, being thrust into the private sector straight away basically has a lot of opportunities or there's a lot of different ways that that experience can go awry, in my opinion, where the student is exposed to a lot of things that probably don't really matter. So when you say standardization, you mean standardization in regards to education or standardization in terms of care? The latter would seem to me that there isn't that pretty much anywhere. One would argue that there shouldn't be standardized care to some extent. I mean, clearly their guidelines are useful. Mm -hmm. But did you mean in relation to care or education? I actually mean a little bit of both. And when I say standardization in regards to care, I do mean that guideline-based care. Guidelines in particular aren't something that's really taught within the chiropractic curriculum, maybe brushed upon or, or, or looked over once or twice during the entire three, four-year curriculum. But those guidelines aren't really ever anything that's, you know, they've never really been explored and so that's sort of what I mean when I say standardization, but also the education aspect. A lot of the education that chiropractic students get comes from outside of the curriculum. So you're taught these core things that basically allow you to pass boards, but what you actually use in the clinic, in the private sector, uh, and in, when you're actually training or treating patients, that stuff you learn in seminars and that stuff you learn in discussions with other clinicians. And those are things that you sort of take up outside of the curriculum and there's a serious void in the curriculum itself, specifically for strength and conditioning, physical rehabilitation, um, you know, how to use guideline-based care, how to integrate the evidence, all those things. So to me, that's what I mean when I say standardization. If students were exposed and maybe to just things, a, go ahead. Just greater variants of care that you've got chiropractors which are hooking up to various machines and bringing out the activator. And then on the other end of the spectrum, people like you and everything in the middle. And I suppose in physical therapy, there would be some variants, of course, but there seems to be a mainstay of interventions or frameworks which just seem to characterize to a greater extent the more typical practice of physical therapy. Uh, we have the same in osteopathy. You can go to an osteopath and they hold your head for half an hour and you know, do very little social interaction or you get someone that gives you deadlifts and squats and does no manual therapy, both of which meet the requirements for registration and can demonstrate skills and expertise, which are you know, the, the regulated criteria. So yeah, I, I, I think I get what you're saying. Yeah. It, it's, it's as if, especially in that last, I'd say year of chiropractic school, when a lot of students are taking a lot of different electives, everyone starts to sort of fan away, starts to peel off, carve out their own path of how they're going to treat clinically. And I think that there's almost something bad to that process. Not that everyone should think the same, but, you know, it's like this lack of uniformity, this lack of standardization is a big drawback for chiropractors in general, you know, in the private sector and at least for public perception as well. It's like when you go to a chiropractor, you don't exactly know what you're going to get, which isn't the perception when you go to a physical therapist, whether or not a physical therapist that you see down the street provides you the same or different care from, you know, someone else across the country. Mm -hmm. So it's almost... Uh, yeah, I mean, the only point, I, I, I totally accept what you're saying, but I think the public, rightly or wrongly, have a 
kind of stereotypical view of what they're going to get when they see a chiropractor. So there's the reality and there's the expectation. You know, certainly when I see patients, they say, oh, the chiropractors, they do more of the kind of cracky stuff, don't you? And, and so I think there is, seems to be a presumption on on patients that they're going to get some manual mm-hmm. therapy, some kind of clicking and cracking. But the expectation is is probably not always that. But I don't sense much angst in you or um, you're a pretty relaxed guy. We're speaking to Aaron. There was obviously his passion and angst is probably the strong word, but certainly frustration when I spoke to Rob from osteopathy was just sadness. I think it's probably the best best way or regret to describe his, his outsider experience. Yours is kind of one of pretty zen. Yeah, I surprisingly, it took me a while to get here. I was quite angry, especially during school. I think school basically allowed me to get those frustrations out to the point where, like I said, multiple times I was deliberating whether or not I should actually leave and go do physical therapy instead. But the academic process really allowed me to explore my ideas, talk to mentors, decide whether or not I was on the right path. And one of the things that I was able to gather and one of the conclusions that I was able to make is that, you know, a couple of different things. Number one, there are actually good chiropractors who are doing essentially what I want to do. And whether or not that has broader implications on the profession as a whole is debatable. But as long as I can provide that for patients, if I can treat a patient, treat one patient and convince them that chiropractic is not voodoo, witchcraft, magic, then fantastic. That's a win for me. Then my degree and my time was well spent. But where does that pursuit come? What do you care what patients think about a chiropractic? Why are you looking to inform the world about your profession, given that given that there doesn't seem to be a huge affinity between you and chiropractic? What is it? What's the kind of obligation there? Yeah, I think that it's because I had such a good experience with my mentors. And I think that so many chiropractors that I've come across are just brilliant. Just as, as clinicians as a whole, they can hold their own with physical therapists, medical doctors, you know, orthopedic surgeons, so on and so forth. And I think that if the public just had more interaction with chiropractors like that, then their perception of the profession as a whole would change. And I try to be one of those chiropractors because I think it's important, at least within a local community-based perspective. And at the end of the day, that's what I care about. I care about whether or not the people of my community can can trust me. And when they make a referral to their friends or family, they can say, this guy is not like the other ones. That's what I care about at, at my core. So in a way, I mean, despite me labeling you as an outsider, which clearly in many ways you are, you're actually staying within the profession, like some insider looking to kind of begin to change perceptions and beliefs from the inside rather than lobbing stones from the outside. Yeah. I think that, you know, at the beginning, like I said, I was very sort of angry at the profession as a whole. And I was always getting into fights with not just other chiropractic students, but chiropractors who were already fighting the fight that I was trying to, to take people who had been in the profession for 20, 30, 40 years, I was coming up to them and being like, why isn't the profession changed? Why, why haven't we made sufficient progress yet? And that answer was a lot more complicated than just have you know, innumerable conversations with people and then hope you can change their minds. In reality, 
there's policy and reality there's 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 privatized insurance in reality there's lobbyists there's ways that change can be made that takes an exorbitant amount of time you have to sort of take this incrementalism approach or else you're going to go clinically insane and there's people who have been again fighting this fight that i think you know i thought that i can go into the profession and just change it but there are people who are smarter than I am, people who are have been doing research for longer than I am, people who are better clinically than I am that have been doing this and they still retain that sort of semblance or that sense of optimism. And I think that that is the most noble philosophy that you can have when you're going into chiropractic is that, you know, I was angry at the beginning, but I'm trying to retain that sense of optimism because I see in not only clinicians who are practicing or have practiced for 40, 50 years, I see it in the students who are just like I am, you know, um, who are who are evidence-based and who are bright-eyed and are ready and willing to take on the challenges that the profession can throw at them. And I think that if given the option between peps, pessimism and optimism, why not just be optimistic if you're within the profession already? Um, it's going to do you no good to be pessimistic and try to change the profession. Why not be optimistic and try and change the profession? I mean, assuming there's evidence to be optimistic. I think so. I think so. Yeah, there is evidence to be optimistic. And, you know, to the to the contrary, the flip side of that is that there's there's evidence that being pessimistic worsens outcomes. So I'd say that I'm choosing the evidence-based <laughs> route here by being rather optimistic. And I think what, what comes with passion is impatience, right? You just want to change. You want it all to change right now. And I don't know if we're on similar generations. When did you qualify as a chiropractor? I uh, graduated the program in 2020 or 2021. I don't remember. I've only been okay. a year and a half, two years in practice. So Okay. So I'm really old. I mean, I mean compared to you, I'm 2005 or six. Okay. Yeah. But I've got colleagues who are far more mature than I am. And I was, you know, like you, I say, why is it still like this? It's, everything's shit and it's not changing and and they'll just say you know they'll say listen when i was studying people were still or we were still teaching you know strapping the the lower back bracing the spine with belts and various things for back pain things really have come on and i think you know it's never quick enough is it when you when you arrive at that point but and like I said, what comes with our passion is often impatience and wanting it to change now. But those that have been doing this for longer often point out, well, actually things are changing and you know, it just takes time to shift these, shift the dial. Yeah. I think it's good to have those Yoda-esque mm -hmm. figures in your life, you know, when you're going through this, this process, especially if you're someone who thinks critically and, and challenges a lot of the prevailing ideas. And that's what you know, that's actually one of the reasons why I reached out to other groups like Facebook groups and, and different groups where, where chiropractors were talking about these ideas and they were, you know, quote unquote evidence-based and they were trying to rationalize things and try and figure out how to go about enacting change effectively. And I think that, like you said, you're impatient when you're very passionate and that passion can be routed to be very, very productive or it can be routed to cause you to implode basically and, uh, and cause everything to crumble and giving students and giving, um, you know, these other components of the profession, that optimism, I think is again, you know, the best way to sort of, uh, chip away at, at the things that we need to change. So 
Do you want to talk about how you got booted off the chiropractic Facebook sure. group? What was the context around that and what was it like? Yeah. So I was part of a chiropractic Facebook group that has around, I think at the time, maybe eight to 10,000 members. Uh, it's a private group. They promote evidence-based chiropractic and really what it's like functionally is an open forum for chiropractors to ask different questions for chiropractors to refer um, all across the the U.S. and internationally if they have uh, if they have patients who are, are traveling and can't come to their office. Um, so that was a good outlet for me. And I got introduced to them just via browsing online, trying to find evidence-based you know, chiropractic groups. They were the first thing that came up and their primary uh, outlet is through Facebook. So, uh, you know, they had a, a very, very active Facebook group where a lot of people were asking questions, engaging with things, posting different literature, asking chiropractors what their takes were on that literature, um, asking how that literature could be applied to clinical practice. And I actually, you know, sort of, I entered that group and then started working for that group to promote different you know, seminars. Um, we actually put on a seminar, I think it was in 2019 and invited people like Greg Lehman, um, I, th I think we even may have, might have invited Adam Meekins, but we tried to invite a bunch of different providers and practitioners who were evidence-based, who could speak to students and, and colleagues and sort of um, spread the word about what they were trying to do within the profession. And so there's a lot of good that came out of those endeavors within that group. But there was also sort of the flip side where I felt that the net for quote-unquote evidence-based was almost too wide. And there were things in that group that I didn't agree with that really challenged how productive being in that group was for me. Because instead of being productive, there was a point in time where it started to become frustrating, similar to my experience in school, where I felt that there was almost too many things that were being let in, that were creating noise when we could be talking about other things that were a little bit more productive. And the sort of tipping point there was when I asked a question, uh, you know, pretty controversially, I, I, I sort of went in there with, um, I went in there with the thought and I went in there with the notion and intent of sort of stirring the pot because I wanted to say, okay, this is going to be the deciding question whether or not I'm going to leave this group. So the question that I asked was, is there any point in time where it is defensible to perform spinal manipulation on infants? And that was the question that I chose to basically say because of the controversy around, uh, I think you remember Ian Rossborough, uh, the Gonset provider. Yeah. And Ian was one of the reasons why I actually got into chiropractic as well, just finding his videos and, and seeing how he you know, basically went about his care clinically. That was very inspiring for me. So I said, okay, if that's going to be my entrance into chiropractic, this is going to be my exit out of this Facebook <laughs> group. So I, I said the question, I got just in my opinion, uh, wild responses to that question. Um, you know, nothing that maybe some chiropractors would say is too condemning, but the resounding answer that I got was, yes, it's okay to manipulate the spine of infants because, and then they would try to uh, you know, basically qualify why they should. And although I don't necessarily disagree with their qualifications, like, you know, number one, the manipulation is, is gentle. It's not really a forceful thrust. It's not high velocity. It was almost as if 
they weren't addressing the fact that these things don't seem to have any utility once we look at the literature, like infantile colic um, and, 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 and bedwetting and, and all these different things, it, it doesn't seem to impact those outcomes. And so why would we do it in the first place? It's safe, but just ineffective. Yeah. I mean, there's no good reason to think it would, it would be effective. There's no plausible mechanism. That's my example of the pericardium. There's no, you are unlikely doing harm. I mean, I think there's harm in terms of the messages that you might send to parents mm-hmm. or caregivers of kids that the reason why your child's unsettled is actually because they've got subluxations in their spine. Or even if you back off and did some tent, you know, restrictions in the spine there's no evidence to support that there's no evidence certainly to refute that notion so it's also about just the ethics of of the truth really like it's Mm -hmm. not true to base the treatment on those mechanisms regardless even before the safety aspect i mean maybe safety should come first but if we grant the safety I don't know, but my, my sense is that babies aren't getting harmed by gentle manual therapy. I don't think it's an epidemic of that proportions, but I think there's certainly questionable kind of reasoning around that and just a paucity of evidence to suggest plausibility of the treatment. Yeah, in my mind, if it's not going to significantly impact outcomes, if it's not going to really change the course of care, then why actually take the time to perform the intervention? And in fact, I think that performing the intervention, like you suggested, gives more chances for things to go awry. And the explanation from the clinician to the parent and those things, those ideas can prevail and become harmful over time. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather minimize the exposure to bad ideas by just not performing the intervention, despite the fact that you might not necessarily be harming the patient. And that's Something that I think about, you know, just with spinal manipulation on on adults as well, um, but particularly with infants, because the parents coming to you because they can't seem to calm the infant down themselves. Now the the parent is not necessarily desperate, but they're looking for something to change. And if you provide them with an answer like that, then they're inevitably going to come back to you, and that idea is going to fester. They're going to tell their friends, so on and so forth, and then the bad idea, quote unquote, is going to spread like wildfire. So I'd rather just cut that entire possibility out of the of the realm of possibilities yeah. and just not have that exposure. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a real an area which needs to be talked about and and I'm not clear on it and I touched on it. I did a Facebook Live about pediatric care versus we have kind of, I suppose the, you know, we tend not to kind of adjust babies. And I know when, when I see the videos of chiropractors adjusting babies, uh, they look pretty, and I'm not condoning any of this, but, it seems to be materially different from the kind of cracking that adults get. It does seem to be, I mean, they're called adjustments. They they look reasonably kind of low load and low force. I still don't agree with them, but there's something about, uh, we have kind of, I suppose the cranial type approach where it's gentle pressure around the head and the body, probably similar sorts of forces and loads. But there's, uh, I think what we're, I always, I struggle with is that the mechanism is so implausible, but I don't, just necessarily dispute the interaction might be helpful. I mean, it's a calming environment. There's you're reassuring the parents. There's some kind of proxy reassurance to the child. 
uh, there's all those kind of relational contextual factors but often when you want when the discussion goes into the treatment that those the claimants really want to well no it really is down to the adjustment it's not contextual factors just isn't, isn't doesn't work for me like it's got to be down to the specifics of the treatment and there's a particular mechanism so i always I never find that i always find that interesting rather than just not you're not satisfied that it just might be helpful for a whole bunch of unknown contextual reasons it's got to be helpful in the particular way that they're claiming it to be and it's that's telling isn't it that there's an adherence to a particular mechanism definitely i think that the lack of sort of intellectual honesty to deal with the ambiguity in that way and to to sort of embrace the void is the same sort of frustration that i felt again in the in my academic years in my academic curriculum and to feel that within a group of professionals that was sort of the final straw yeah. for me where i had to tell the admin group that hey you know i know i'm part of this this group i know that i've helped basically collaborate and and form a different seminar and lecture content. I know that we've brought on these guests together. I know that you know I've been working with this group for essentially a year and a half, but I think it's time for me to exit because this is becoming a little bit too daunting on me and too cumbersome and non-productive. Where it, there was a point in time where it certainly was that those things that you know I got those things out of the group. But after a couple of years, I no longer got those things out of the group. And I felt like perpetual exposure to those ideas was just going to make me more frustrated. So I opted to leave. So although I wasn't kicked out, you know, I, I chose to to willingly leave because I think that our views just didn't line up and I wasn't going to be able to change anyone's mind. And again, going through that practice of not being able to change anyone's mind, being frustrated was just not something that I wanted to interact with anymore because, you know, I didn't have to. And what's your relationship like now with chiropractic? I mean, what's your, what do you feel about it? What do you think about it when you're at some social event and people ask what you do? Do you mumble chiropractic or just say, yeah, I'm a clinician? How do you, how do you tackle that? I sort of take the same approach that I take clinically to sort of break the ice and, and calm the air, clear the air where I say I'm a chiropractor but not one of the wacky ones. And that tends, that tends to basically make people feel a lot more comfortable because I'm adding an element of, of humor to the situation and they're able to see me interact with the negative connotations and negative notions of chiropractic and make a joke out of it basically. And so that's reassuring. So that's typically what I say when I meet different clinicians who aren't chiropractors or when I meet patients who seem to be particularly apprehensive about seeing a chiropractor. I mean, it's quite... Shocking. I mean, I, you know, I probably do something similar, but it's shocking that you have to do that, right? You've got to, at the point of introducing what you do for work, you've got to have a disclaimer to say, but I'm not like everyone else that you think is a chiropractor. Yeah. It's, 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 (laughs) what does that say? It's, it's abysmal and a little bit woeful. Um, yeah, it's kind of like, um, like if you were a lion approaching a group of gazelles and saying, listen, I'm actually a vegetarian. You don't have to worry about this. It's okay. It's unfortunate, of course. Um, but I think that's the nature of being an evidence-based chiropractor. Unfortunately, that's where the profession is right now. And that's fine because I understand basically my point and the timeline. You know, so I'm not as frustrated as I was as a student. So I don't have any issue doing with doing that and sort of breaking the ice. And I always like to add an element of humor into the into the uh, clinical process, but 
what I think about the profession as a whole is I think that the profession as a whole is changing. It just takes a little bit of digging to see that change. And once you're embedded in the community and once you're embedded into the profession and you basically change your expectations a little bit and shift your perspective and talk to people who have been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years, you realize that the profession is changing. It just, This change will take time. So don't be too frustrated because things are significantly better than they were in the past. So you just sort of have to take you know, where you're at and the timeline of the profession into perspective. And that has alleviated a lot of my personal strife. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a lesson that can be taught to a lot of students uh, and a lot of you know, uh, professionals who are just getting started in the profession. And if you could change three things about chiropractic, if you did have the power of a click of your fingers, what would you change? That's a good question. I think the number one, I would change the fact that we don't have enough uh, clinical rotations or we don't have a residency program within the chiropractic profession. I would, I would, I would change that and make that mandatory because I think that the lack of clinical exposure and the lack of problem solving in the chiropractic curriculum leads students to explore other things that are essentially baseless. Um, when you're, when you feel like you're free falling, you sort of grab at whatever you have at your disposal to try and root you. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You can pick whatever three letter Mm -hmm. acronym certification, or you can pick whatever obscure certification there is out there, a technique and students are going to invariably find that because they feel lost. So they're trying to find their group of people. That's one thing that I would change. So I'd make the curriculum a little bit more robust clinically so that students felt like they didn't have to cling on to other things in order to succeed. And can and can handle that uncertainty. I mean, it's incredibly hard, you know. I totally accept that moving from that novice to more experienced clinician is is really challenging. And and you know, I spoke about uncertainty with Natalia Costa, clinical uncertainty in regards to back pain. And and I think rather than hiding from it and using frameworks which are just overly mechanistic and overly certain and look to disguise the uncertainty or reduce the uncertainty, just being comfortable with it and confronting it and just recognizing that there really is clinical ambiguity and it's okay. Yeah, I agree. And I think that that brings me sort of to my next point. I think that maybe not necessarily a full-blown thesis, but I think that chiropractic students should have something within the curriculum that forces them to engage with the literature so that they can hone their ideas so that they can sharpen their ideas or reject notions that they've themselves had. Because I don't think that you can necessarily change someone's mind who's not willing to change. And I think that that's why I felt a lot of times that I was running into a brick wall is because I had read the studies, but the students hadn't read the studies. And even if I'm trying to convey how this is applicable to them, they haven't interacted with the material. And so me coming in as an outsider and saying, this is why I believe what I believe doesn't really have any credence to someone who isn't already willing to change. So I think that exposing students to the literature is something that I would do is, you know, number two out of the big three things that I would change about the profession, because then they would be able to make more well-informed decisions and be able to think a little bit more critically and parse out, okay, does this actually work? Or is this just, you know, a bunch of uh, foolishness? That was the second one. Third? The third, uh, the third and final one. I think that the last thing that I would change, which is probably a broader 
topic or a broader issue with American healthcare is 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 privatized healthcare. I think that unfortunately, for me and a lot of clinicians who are evidence based, because we don't perpetually treat patients or perpetually treat the same patients, it becomes more and more difficult to sustain yourself when you're seeing patients for three, four visits. The majority of the time, we just have nonspecific pain. You're able to give them the tools so that they can coach themselves out of pain. You're able to give them the tools so that they can cope with their pain. Um, and you're able to reassure them and make them feel safe. You know, a couple of visits of that and most people, at least from my experience, are okay. And so it becomes more and more difficult to sustain yourself, even if you're doing manual therapy, to, to sustain yourself financially if that's the sort of care that you're giving patients. And so, you know, I think that privatized healthcare is putting a little bit more of a squeeze on clinicians every year. And so it's becoming more and more difficult to make a living. And I know a lot of chiropractors who are evidence-based who have different endeavors that are basically able to sustain themselves financially. And I think that a lot of chiropractors actually end up doing chiropractic sort of on the side. I know a lot of tremendous clinicians who actually go part-time because they have other endeavors that make them more money than their chiropractic endeavor. A lot of clinicians that I know are coaches for things like bodybuilding or coaches for things like powerlifting or weightlifting. And that coaching business, because they see their athletes for longer, because they're actually a little bit more in depth with their programming and all these other things, that brings in a little bit more money because you're giving so much attention to this client. Whereas when you're a clinician, again, you're seeing this patient, you know, maybe three or four times unless they have a specific, you know, post-operative thing that they're going through, or maybe they have a particularly difficult case of tendinopathy that they're going through, or their condition is, you know, very, very complex and they're riddled with comorbidities. Unless that's the case, which at least in my demographic of, you know, young, you know, relatively young uh, and healthy people, it's not, then it's difficult to sustain yourself. Just before we... You finish up again. I just noticed it that you make you're quite clear about referring to yourself and others as evidence based chiropractors, and and it again, it just seems weird to have to say that. I mean, what's the alternative if you're not utilizing evidence to to shape your practice and shape your decision making? So it just suggests that there's a whole group of your colleagues who are called just chiropractors, and that presumes that. They're not utilizing evidence. And I guess it's just a very intentional emphasis that you're utilizing a certain type of knowledge to inform your practice. And there's, you're not like the other ones, the wacky ones, as you say at a dinner party. Yeah, I think it's almost a, a disservice to myself and my efforts and my studies to say, to lump myself in, which is again, sort of the dissonance and difficulty and the unfortunate reality of having this degree is that. I can I perpetually and continuously feel that I need to distinguish myself by adding that little bit of mm -hmm. uh, disclosure before I actually say that that I'm a chiropractor, um, and I don't think that that will change in my lifetime, but I think that eventually I'll feel more comfortable just saying chiropractor because on my journey of zenness, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm caring less and less about those labels because I care more and more about what people think about me locally and the people that I actually interact with. And I care less and less about what people on the outside or on social media or what have you think about me. So I think I'm on that. Again, I, I realize where I am on this sort of timeline and I'm embracing where I am on this timeline. And eventually that title will go away. But for now, I'll distinguish myself. Elliot, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.